Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 122. Welcome to episode 122 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. Today, I'm having a conversation with Pat Williams, a basketball Hall of Famer, co-founder of the NBA's Orlando Magic, and author of over 100 books. Pat's latest book, Character Carved in Stone, is about highlighting the values carved in stone benches at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Get a couple of copies, because I think when you read it, you're going to come away saying, oh, I want so-and-so to have this book, or I want this person to have that book. I think that's going to be your reaction. And remember, the 12 qualities that are carved into those benches are qualities that all of us should have burned into our lives as well, whether we're West Point people or not. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. You know, a lot of times we talk about veteran mental health. Uh, a lot of people automatically go to the idea of, you know, PTSD and TBI and, and some of the negative things. But one of the most critical things about mental health is mental wellness. And my guest today, um, is, is very much focused on that. Um, my guest today is Pat Williams. Many people know him as a uh, Hall of Famer, Basketball Hall of Famer, uh, the founder and senior vice president of NBA's Orlando Magic, uh, but he's also an author of over a hundred and well over a hundred books. And uh, in in his most recent book, really focuses on leadership and leadership values, character carved in stone. So, Pat, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dwayne. It's uh, very nice to be with you, and uh, look forward to our visit. Yeah, I, I appreciate um, definitely writing the book. You know, one of the things, um, and, and again, as many people know you, um, but one of the many things that you've done over your military career is you served in the Army for seven years. I did. Uh, I went into the Army uh, basic training in October of 1964 
uh, eight weeks at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, then eight weeks at Fort Polk, Louisiana for advanced <laughs> training, and then spent seven years uh, in the Army Reserves. So uh, I, I sure have a military background. You're right on that. Yeah, that's uh, eight weeks at Fort Polk is enough for anybody. I I had the uh, unfortunate pleasure of being there for about 15 months, and that was ah. one month at Fort Polk is a little too long. And uh, in, in definitely being able to um, look at things from a veteran standpoint, right? You served in the military and you served in the reserves. And, and obviously, a lot of um, veterans, as they transition out of the military, you've had a very successful post-military career. Actually, your career coincided with your military service. Uh, and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on to talk about how um, – our values that we learned in the military can serve veterans well after their military career is over. Oh, I don't think there's any question about that, Dwayne. Uh, even though I was in uh, for a short time, really, uh, I learned so much and I met so many interesting people, particularly uh, our drill sergeant at Fort Jackson. And uh, the late, my new book is out uh, called Character Carved in Stone. And uh, I dedicated the book to Enrique, Sergeant Enrique Fischbach, who was our drill sergeant for those eight weeks. Uh, and I have heard it said that anybody in the military will never forget their drill sergeant during basic training. Well, I, I can confirm that. And... Uh, so he, 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 would, he would head the list of, of the men that uh, I, I remember and were, were impacted by. No, you're absolutely right. Um, as, as I was looking at that, and, and you said the same thing, and, and my first or my drill sergeant in uh, October of 1992 was uh, Staff Sergeant Ingram. And, um, you know, <laughs> I don't know who he is or where he is today, but uh, you're right. Having that, you know, our, our leaders, especially our leaders in the military, had a very big impact um, on our young lives. Um, and then as you, you went on and, and, you're an author of a lot of different books, um, but this book is is a little different as it's focused on um, the the twelve virtues uh, from West Point. Um, why this book as opposed to a lot of your other books on leadership and sports and things like that? Dwayne, you don't always know <clears throat> when a book idea is going to hit you, and and many of them have just come out of a seemingly a clear blue sky. Uh, a few years ago, I was invited to speak at West Point uh, to the Army uh, sports teams, men and women, uh, and their coaches. I had a great experience doing that. And after I'd finished, uh, they gave me a tour of the West Point campus, which is a, a thrilling, really uh, moving. Anyway, we ended up at a park, a little park uh, called Trophy Point. It looks out over the Hudson River. And uh, I noticed in that park as we were walking around, there was a bench, uh, which I guess is not unusual in a park. But then I looked further and there were more benches. I counted them. There were 12. And I said, that's really unusual in a park this size. And then for some reason, Dwayne, I decided to look at one of those benches in detail. And uh, I, I looked at the end of the bench and there was a word carved into the bench. Uh, I think it was compassion. 
And that prompted me to go look at the other benches at the end of the benches. And there was a different word carved into that stone. And, and as I looked further, there were 12 benches and 12 different words carved into those benches. Words like courage and dedication and dignity and loyalty and responsibility, those kind of words. It hit me. There had to be a backstory here. And sure enough, there was uh, the West Point class of 1934 had donated those benches in 1984 at their 50th reunion. And they had selected these words uh, designed to inspire and uplift and challenge West Point students to live up to those words in their leadership world. Well, my reaction was, boy, this has been a well-kept secret. Uh, That's a pretty major story, I thought. And had never heard of it. I'm not sure many had. So we went to the publisher and said, here's the book idea. Let's do a chapter on each one of those words. And let's see if we can find a West Point graduate who best exemplifies or models that particular word. That was quite a, pro- quite a challenge, but we, we did that. And the end result is this book, Character Carved in Stone, Uh, an outline of the 12 words on those benches and the West Point uh, products, you know, who, who modeled them. You know, I can imagine uh, having been a leader um, for the majority of your life, um, you know, both as a player and a coach, um, seeing those words carved in stone and they resonated with you. They, they, you recognize them as, is, you know, absolutely critical for good leadership. I recall as a, a young non-commissioned officer, I was in Germany and um, the, the army had just uh, established or, or codified what, what is now known as the army values, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, and so on. And, and I remember reading that and they rung true to me. I was like, finally, somebody put into words something that I believe to be true. Was it like that when you saw the, the, the 12 virtues that, that automatically they, they rung true to you when it comes to leadership? Well, absolutely. I looked at those words and yes, I, I related it to West Point products and West Point students, but uh, it, it went beyond that for me, Dwayne. I uh, came away saying uh, everybody uh, should, can or should benefit uh, from those 12 words. We should all have them built into our life, uh, particularly as leaders. And, uh, and, and I, I argue uh, strongly, Dwayne, that everybody's a leader, uh, whether you're parents or grandparents, uh, teachers, coaches, youth workers, pastors, uh, business heads. Uh, if you do nothing but lead yourself, uh, we're all in the leadership industry, and uh, these 12 words, you know, should be burned into every one of us. Yes, and I recognize it too, and, and when I um, – the profiles that you have, it, it reminds me of, you know, like Kennedy's profiles of courage and really digging into what um, what each of these different uh, service members, um, both, you know, very early hundreds of years ago and and even some that within you know the the current uh global war on terror um and, and many of them you're using to identify one particular virtue but but several of them cover 
a number of different ones. I'm wondering if you could briefly explain for the audience what the, the 12 values are. Well, and uh, here, here's how we put the book together uh, alphabetically. That's what happened here. Compassion, courage, dedication, determination, dignity, discipline, integrity, loyalty, perseverance, responsibility, service, and trust. Um, these benches uh, remind cadets of the qualities that lead to victory and success, not just on the battlefield, uh, but in all of life as well. So I, I think that those inscribed words really challenge all of us as leaders to, to live up to them. Right. And, and I, I think back to what you just said about that this was the class of 1934 and in their 50th reunion in 1984, um, a, a number of those um, graduates from the class of 34, of course, they, they were in World War II. I mean, they, they really did understand what was needed, um, the values that were needed to lead soldiers into combat um, in, in this class very specifically. Um, carve these into stone, right? They're indelible. And yet they ring true for leaders today. They, you know, in, in a sense, they're timeless. Uh, and of course they are. Um, but from one generation saying, this is how we got through and led our soldiers um, in World War II. And this is how you can get through and lead your soldiers today. Well, Dwayne, you hit, you hit a key point there. These men who graduated in 1935, they would have been 22 years old. Uh, World War II started, uh, well, uh, six, uh, seven years later. So these men would have been now 29. Uh, when the war ended, uh, they would have been, um, what, 34. And then five years later, Korea erupted. And at that point, they'd have been 39. So they would have seen action in Korea as well. So, so these men, uh, not all of them would have, but many would have, I'm sure. So these men saw it and lived it. And uh, so when they, when they got together to pick these 12 words, uh, they were speaking from experience, from reality. Uh, they'd been there. They'd seen it all. And there's a, a number of these that, of course, we would naturally look at, right? This is uh, the military academy at West Point. And you mentioned earlier about the um, the awe-inspiring. I've had the honor of being able to visit the Naval Academy, of course, here in Colorado Springs. We're at the Air Force Academy. All of our service academies are just, you know, um, amazing and awe-inspiring. Most of these are ones that you would automatically expect that would come from military virtues. But the first one that you listed, compassion, um, having been in the military for 22 years myself, sometimes that's not always an attribute, um, that, that many, many military leaders sort of, uh, um, uh, include in this list. Um, but you say that compassion's not incompatible with leadership. Uh, why do you think that some people believe a, a good leader can't be compassionate? Well, <clears throat> let's, uh, let me first of all, explain the, the person that we, built into that chapter was Ulysses, General Ulysses S. Grant. And, and people immediately think of Grant 
Well, they nicknamed him back in the Civil War, Butcher Grant, you know, as he pressed on uh, down through Virginia to try and uh, dominate and, and end the war. And a lot of men lost their lives in that war, in that stage of it. But when you study Grant, uh, he cared deeply about his people, his soldiers. He was concerned about all of them. He, um, he had a very, very uh, loving, wonderful marriage. And uh, he, he had a compassionate sense of his wife. They, they, they had a, a, a deep love affair. And uh, you'll find this interesting, Dwayne. He cared deeply about the horses. Uh, Grant was a horseman. At West Point, he excelled there in that phase. And uh, he knew what he was doing around horses. So one day uh, during the war, he saw one of the soldiers just whipping, beating, and unmercifully attacking this horse. And Grant stopped. He was very, very angry. And he went over to that soldier and, and absolutely ripped him, you know, for doing what he was doing. And basically said, if I ever catch you doing that to an animal again, he said, you don't want to know what's going to happen to you. So uh, <clears throat> Grant <clears throat> had a, a real heart for people. And that leads to the leadership skill, Dwayne. I like to call it simply people skills. Great leaders have people skills. That means that they care about people. They're interested in them. They have a heart for people. They have uh, empathy for people. They love people. That, that, that's uh, what I've noticed about all great leaders. Uh, by and large, they excel in that area of people skills. Because really, when you think about it, Dwayne, uh, those West Point graduates are not in the, in the Army business or the uh, military business. They're not in the war business. Uh, they're in the people business. And no matter what field we're in of endeavor, um, we're all in the people business. So it behooves leaders to, to have a heart and a compassion and a concern, a, a, a caring attitude towards people. You know, I appreciate that you you identified that this this idea of um, leadership and military leadership uh, as being in the people business. Um, I work with a lot of um, veterans as a mental health professional, uh, and some of them feel, you know, um, unstuck or, or unmoored in their post military life because they say, "Well, how does my uh, military, you know, how does my job?" you know, translate to the post-military life, right? You know, if I was an MP, okay, maybe I could have been a cop or, you know, but I was an infantryman or, or things like that. And, and one thing that perhaps some people who haven't served in the military um, aren't aware of this and, and many veterans aren't aware of this is there are things that are transferable. As you said, leadership in the military is about people. Leadership in, in post-military life is about people. Leadership in our families, leadership in our churches, and all of these things are about people. Um, these these values, and this goes back to what I said earlier, is these values um, aren't necessarily tied to being military, although they are developed within us. Um, 
but this being about people, uh, this can help veterans have a better post-military life than maybe they're experiencing if they realize they have something to offer to their community. I think, frankly, that to have that kind of a military background, when you come out into civilian life, you you should be able to uh, really, really name your ticket as far as your civilian life. Uh, if I were in the hiring business and I find that you have successfully led men or women in, in um, combat or in military activities, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to you. Uh, I, I think that you've got something special going on in your life. I, I'd be very interested in having you part of my organization because you have seen it. You've done it. You, and, and if you are a product of West Point, if you graduated from the United States Military Academy, mm, that has a ring to it, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does, and, and no pun intended. As as definitely the West Pointers have, uh, they have their ring. But you're absolutely right. Um, some of the um, most respected leaders I ever followed in the military were from West Point, uh, and and even more to the point, it's extremely competitive. Um, in the book, at one point, you say that um, you know they. Uh, one of the cadets realized that, you know, everybody you got there, there was a leader. They were all like you, only better. Um, I've had the honor of uh, being able to serve on the Academy Selection Committee for for one of our local senators these past two mm. years in a row. And and just being able to, I mean, it gives you hope for the future to see the leaders of the nation. I mean, these are outstanding young men and women, um, late teens, uh, at, at the most early 20, but, but definitely in their late teens, um, that simply want to serve serve. Um, and, and then not only they come in with these values sort of intrinsic, but they're even ingrained and carved in stone, in, in stone, so to speak, in them. Well, first of all, you've got to be a very good student to even be considered. Uh, you, you have to have excelled in your high school schoolwork. Secondly, uh, they're interested in you physically. Uh, there are you know, a, a full assortment of, of sports teams at West Point. And uh, they're always looking for, uh, for good athletes. Uh, they're looking for good uh, citizens, uh, youngsters who have been involved in activities beyond their, their schoolwork, uh, contributions in the community, maybe, maybe a, scouting, a scouting background, uh, those are the things that really uh, need to be in that that package uh, when you apply. So uh, the Army uh, admissions office can be very picky, very choosy uh, to get nothing but the best because they want students that are going to go through the full four years. They're looking. They don't want students after one year to say, oh, "This isn't for me." I, I, I'm sure that happens in some cases. But that admissions office is not, you know, is trying to avoid that. They want students who are going to handle the whole thing, the discipline that goes with it and the demands um, and uh, and um, the attitude you must have to to be a, a West Point graduate. It's not easy. It's not for everybody. But for those elite youngsters, it's uh, it's it's a great, great step. I I have yet to meet 
an Annapolis graduate or Air Force or the United States Military Academy who said, ah, I wish I'd done something else. Ah, I wish I wish I'd gone to. Oh, I don't know. I wish I'd gone to Penn State or I wish I'd gone to uh, Georgia Tech or something. You know, I've, I've never heard that. No, you're absolutely right. It, it puts me in mind my my second Afghanistan deployment. Our um, our team leader um, was a, is a West Point grad, and some of the other captains that were we were on a um, evaluation tr- team for the uh, Afghan Ministry of Defense, and some of the captains were um, you know ROTC graduates or OCS graduates, and and one day they were sitting around talking about uh, you know their college experience, and, and of course they turned to to the major and. Um, he did not have a typical college experience. Uh, and he said exactly that. He said, I wouldn't change it though, because it, it's given me everything that I've ever, um, used for success in the military. Dwayne, I'm not sure that I know your full story. Um, share it. Where'd you go to college and where did the military part come in? And, and you just mentioned that you've You've served overseas in some hot spots. Uh, give me a brief overview here. Uh, sure. So um, I, I did actually try to go to college, and it's it's. Um, I appreciate the story about um, Ulysses S. Grant. I'm a fan because I originally grew up in St. Louis, and of course, one of um, yes, uh, one of his uh, failed many failed business ventures um, were from St. Louis or in St. Louis. Um, and, uh, you know, I graduated high school and I tried a semester of college and it turned out not to be exactly, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, and my father had been a Vietnam veteran and and he was not enthused about his son um, joining the military, but this was 1992. And of course this was post Gulf war. And, and so entering into that, uh, but I found that uh, I, I enjoyed the military uh, very much, and so I enlisted it the first time I was in for um, about a year in the reserves, and then I decided that I wanted to go active duty. Um, did two tours um, uh, overseas in Germany. Um, in between those two tours, I spent uh, three years at the 82nd Airborne Division, and uh, we were in Germany on 9-11, uh, my family and I, and uh, and that's when, of course, the world changed for a lot of different people. Uh, but I was about halfway through my military career uh, and uh, <laughs> raised my right hand, said I wanted to go to 101st. I had family legacy in 101st. One of my uncles was in 101st in Vietnam in the Army, in its infinite wisdom, decided to send me to recruiting duty instead of combat the way I wanted uh, so I spent three years as a recruiter, the, the early years of, of the war, um, uh, putting young, young men and women in the army, uh, outside of Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, then, um, then my family and I came here to Fort Carson, um, did one of the 15 month tours in Iraq, um, another 10 month tour in, or excuse me, a, a full year in Afghanistan, another nine month tour in Afghanistan. Then I finished my career with the 10th special forces group. Um, here in their support element, uh, and did a, a short trip over to North Africa with them. Um, and, and in between all that, I, much as, as you said here, all of these virtues, I recognized the, the importance of all of these, um, and that there would be life after the military. And, uh, and that's when I decided to, um, continue the mission as a mental health professional, um, helping veterans after I retired. Now you've, uh, you've, you've sparked my curiosity, uh, what was your time in Germany like? Did you enjoy that? What uh, what t- what took place there? <laughs> we call it. It's, it's the tale of two uh, 
a tale of two careers, I guess. My first tour, I was 19 years old. Um, really? First, first time uh, away from uh, from home, and so uh, and, and I wasn't married at the time. Um, I, I had some very great experiences. Um, had you know made some very lifelong friends. Um, and then during those three years, I ended up going to um, Bosnia when when they first went into the Balkans um, uh, through the Dayton Peace Accords, um, and. And even halfway through, and this goes back to the, you know, the discussion about being an officer at one point, um, I had even, I had signed up and I'd started the paperwork to go to the green to gold program. And I was actually going to get out and, uh, had applied to Tuskegee university. It was going to be a four-year degree. Um, and, uh, uh and then I was going to come back in and, and, and be an officer, uh, and one of my NCOs, um, one day, you know, talking to me about what, um, you know, what I wanted to do. And he's like, what do you want to do when you get it? You know, you get a degree, you need to do something. And I said, well, I want to be a teacher, you know, that's, that's, and, and very many different times throughout my career. And, and much like you as, as, you know, as a player and a, an executive to teach and to mentor. Um, and then he said, well, that's what a non-commissioned officer is. That's, that's what you get to do as an NCO is you get to teach, um, and, and that's when I decided to go jump out of airplanes instead of pin gold bars, um, mm. on my collars, um, and, and, and really, you know, continue through that. And, and so, and then the second tour in Germany, so I spent three years in the 82nd airborne division. Uh, and then I had enjoyed Germany so much, uh, in between that time, my wife and I had gotten married and, uh, and the second tour, uh, in Germany, um, was was much different than my first tour because I was not a, a young private and I was a family man and um, definitely not as as wild and as crazy as we can be in nineteen twenty twenty one, um, but still it, it one of the things and and you've probably seen it definitely with all your international travel is is veteran service members. Um, are much more globally minded, right? You know, we understand different cultures. We experience different cultures. We adapt to different cultures, um, both, you know, obviously whenever we deploy perhaps to a combat zone. Um, but that's one of the things that I think that the military gave me was an opportunity to um, be exposed to different cultures and see how the rest of the world is um, in, in, in many ways that much more appreciate what we have here. Dwayne, um, I want to talk to you for a little bit about some of these personalities in this book, Character Carved in Stone, uh, that really left an imprint on me. You mentioned jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> we, do, we do a chapter on General Matthew Ridgway. Yeah, that was a favorite of mine, by the way. We, we, love, we love Matt Ridgway and Jumpin' Jim Gavin, and we have our airborne heroes. Well, Matthew Ridgway on uh, the morning of D-Day was jumping out of airplanes with his men behind enemy lines into France on the morning of D-Day. He was not back in London. He was not out on a ship somewhere in the English Channel, you know, um, um, pointing directions. He, he was... Um, in the air, jumping out of plane, out of a plane with his men. I, I'm, I'm deeply moved by that. And then, of course, Ridgeway in 1951, when President Truman relieved Douglas MacArthur of his duties in Korea, he was replaced by by General Matthew Ridgeway. Ridgeway uh, certainly deserves our our admiration. 
And then uh, in this book, uh, we uh, we had a little different twist. Uh, coach Mike Krzyzewski, uh the incredibly successful Duke coach, was a West Point guy. And he tells the story, and we used it in the book. He was a plebe there, January, miserable weather, heading to his next class with his room. He was with his roommate. Shoes buffed and polished, uniform crisp, looked good. And somebody, it might have been his roommate, stepped in a puddle of gook and it splashed all over those shoes. And Mike was faced with the decision, do I rush back to my room and try and get these shoes straightened out? Or uh, do I try and get to the next class quickly? Well, at that moment, he was stopped by an officer who challenged him on his shoes. And Mike tried to blurber out, well, I was just walking across the campus and up. And the officer cut him off, reminded him at West Point, you have one of three answers. Yes, sir. No, sir. No excuse, sir. (laughs) And to this day, Mike is 72 years old, but he will tell you that that was a turning point day in his life. Uh, From that point on, his attitude as a leader has been, this was done well and I did it. This was done poorly and I did it. But in either case, I am responsible. And uh, if you stopped and asked Mike Krzyzewski about that today, he would confirm that with you. That's that's, uh, part of the chapter on the importance of responsibility as a leader. And, and this is one of the things that I really appreciate about the book, and, and, and even more, I appreciate that you you had sent me a copy of it. Um, but that the, there's stories there that that of course I hadn't known, um, you know. But but some very personal stories, um, like um, uh, one thing that that really kind of uh, struck me was um, Dwight Eisenhower and integrity. Um, th- that I didn't realize that he had labored in obscurity under MacArthur for seven years, right? Making one rank in seven years. And then I think it was what, like 18 months later, he had essentially rocketed to the top as a Supreme Allied commander. Um, and, and for, in, and this can be those in the military or anyone who feels like, you know, maybe I'm destined for greater things. Um, and, and not to get bitter about it and not to, to be overwhelmed, but, but the example of, of, um, of Dwight's, integrity to be able to continue to do his mission. And, and a lot of those values were, were ingrained in him and West Point. These are, these are values that are developed in us as the training ground for the rest of our lives. Yeah, that's, that's well put Dwayne. He, uh, he, he, he did not see any action in world war one. Uh, that kind of, that troubled him. Then he, he had those years in the Philippines uh, serving under MacArthur. Now, uh, MacArthur had a, a lot of positive traits, but uh, he was a he was a pretty difficult man. Uh, his ego was enormous, and uh, Eisenhower kind of chafed under him. Although he was always very respectful and and honored MacArthur's position, but he was frustrated, and so now. Uh, and, and, and Dwayne, here's another little footnote that uh, I did not realize. The, the Philippine government 
was paying our leaders over there some enormous sums of money. Um, I, I think MacArthur ended up getting like $500,000 from the Philippine government. Uh, that was going on. I, it, was, it was not illegal. Uh, they, they, you could do that. They could do that. Eisenhower had the same opportunity, but he declined. He, he simply said, I'm, I'm being well paid. I'm being paid enough. And he did not participate. Eisenhower has a terrific quote in which he says the key part of leadership is integrity. He said, whether you're leading in the military, uh, coaching a football team or <clears throat> uh, working a, 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 a gang, you know, in the uh, in the uh, construction business, he said it, it, it comes down to integrity. And I think, Dwayne, that uh, needs a little bit of examination. Uh, integrity is a fascinating word. It comes from the root word integer, which means, of course, one. Uh, that would lead to a word like uh, integrity. Uh, integrity means, or, excuse me, that would lead to a word like integrated. An integrated society is one society. So a leader of integrity, well, there's a consistency to their life. Uh, walk and talk match. Leaders of integrity are not talking one way and then walking completely in the opposite direction. Boy, that'll confuse people. Uh, that'll that'll absolutely uh, you know set them off in a way that uh, they they just can't understand. So I guess this is the best way to do it. A leader of integrity. Well, the tongue in their mouth is always pointing in the same direction as the tongue in their shoes. Uh, walk and talk match, and uh, it's you know we can we can uh, no matter what field we're in. It's always important to study leaders in our life. Uh, do they, is integrity part of their makeup? Uh, is there a consistency to their life? That, that's what we're looking for here. You know, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. And it puts me in mind of, uh, you, you say that, um, you know, those that don't have integrity, um, the people that are following, you, you don't know which way they're going, right? And, and I look at that. Listen, you brought up uh, General MacArthur, um, not someone who had all of these virtues, right? I mean, there were some that he, he might have been significantly lacking in, as you mentioned, the, the humbleness um, or the selflessness kind of thing. Um, but, but he had a large number of them. Um, but as I look at this list, and, and one of the things we call them today toxic leaders, there's bad leaders in, in, in the military, out of the military. There's some, um, you know, arguably I've heard that, uh, you know, Steve Jobs was, was just, he was not a very good pe person to his people. Um, so you can be successful, but to be a truly good leader, you have to have a majority, if not all of these, um, I look at sort of the the shadow that goes along with the shape. Someone can be defined as a toxic leader by the absence of these values. Well, I think that's why it's so important, Dwayne, no matter uh, who we are and what position we're in, uh, learn and study leadership, both good and bad. And and if you're 
if you're in a position with a with a leader that you don't respect, don't admire, uh, learn from them. You're not going to be with them forever, uh, but learn from them so that when you have opportunities to lead, uh, you want to know the things that you want to avoid because you've you've seen them. And so, in other words, don't waste that that period of time when you're not enjoying or don't respect the leader you're with, don't waste it. Because when you get your chance, you know, you want to make sure that you don't repeat those qualities that the poor leader. Right. And, and even that's critical when you say, when you get your chance, I'm thinking about many of the, the leaders here um, that, that they were, they were appropriate for their time. I think um, you'd mentioned that uh, General Schwarzkopf had said, if there wasn't a war, then nobody would know who I was. Um, or again, um, Ulysses S. Grant, you know, struggled or travailed in the West um, before he was brought East. Um, you know, General Pershing uh, took over um, at a point where West Point needed. So many of these individuals were were those that had the values that prepared them for the time that they emerged into. Yeah, that's that's a great point, because you never know uh, in any field you're in, you never know when your moment is going to come to step up and be the leader of any organization. In my business of basketball, Dwayne, uh, you never know, for example, if you've been an assistant coach for a period of time, you never know when that head job is going to open up somewhere, Maybe at a different university, it may be an assistant in the NBA, and now you uh, are stepping up to the head coaching job. You never know when that's going to happen. So it's awfully important to be a student of leadership, not just currently in, in, in watching and studying, but, but from history. That's why I think it's so important uh, to be a serious reader about leadership. Uh, you need to do a thorough study. You need to be very familiar with George Washington as a leader and Abraham Lincoln as a leader. So in other words, when you're reading about these men, it's important to be reading about them uh, from the leadership angle. Uh, you need to be conversant about Winston Churchill as a leader and um, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt. You need to be conversant about Coach John Wooden. And Bear Bryant and um, Ronald Reagan. Uh, you need to be conversant about these men and and women, and and what is it that made them great leaders? Yeah, I think that's that's very true. As you're talking, many people know, of course, that George Washington was a leader. They know that Abraham Lincoln. You know, we we know that they are leaders, um, but. But how often do we really get to the below the surface of the fact that, um, and, and as you mentioned, you know, um, we all have our favorite presidents. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt is one of mine. Um, his life was, was not an easy one, much of it because of, of his own doing. Um, but, but just the fact that even after he was president, he, you know, went on one of the most dangerous expeditions and, and nearly killed him uh, in South, you know, so all of these different things, it's, it's not enough just to know leadership. As you said, we have to be conversant in it. Well, uh, some of my favorite presidents were voracious leaders. 
Teddy Roosevelt would read one book a day, they say. I mean, he was, he was a voracious leader and writer. Uh, Harry S. Truman never went to college. But he was probably our, our best or the, our sharpest leader in many ways because he was a absolutely voracious reader himself. From the time he was a young, he wasn't an athlete. He had bad vision. But and so as a kid, he, he, he read and, and he read, you know, just endlessly and he never stopped. And uh, therefore, in fact, Truman once said, not all readers will be leaders, but all leaders must be readers. Good challenge. Uh, so I encourage people and tell them this, Dwayne. If you read the right five books on any one subject, you'll be considered a world leading authority on that subject. So uh, take Ulysses S. Grant, read, read the right five books on Grant. And uh, when you finish, you will be considered a world leading authority on uh, General Grant. There's a good challenge for you. <laughs> there might be people who have uh, read uh, maybe that sixth book, but uh, but you're right. You know, I, I have a, a very very respected mentor um, in another area, not necessarily mental health, but in education. And I was at a conference with him recently, uh, and he was talking to a friend where where they hadn't um, um, seen each other in, in some months or what have you. And, and I was sitting there, and we were eating, and he turned to his friend um, and he said, "So what are you reading right now?" Um, not, mm -hmm. not, are you reading not, not, you know, have you read any good books lately, but really, you know, um, concerned or, or very interested in what are you reading right now? Um, and that struck me and, and I can tell you, I'm, I've been, uh, um, hoping maybe that someone was, would ask me that question, um, these past couple of weeks as I've been reading your book, um, so that I could be able to open up and have that conversation with you. Well, that's good. I, if, if nothing comes of our chat here, Dwayne, if, if some people hear this and say, you know, I've been delinquent in this whole area of reading, and my mind is, my brain is just not getting the exercise it needs. It's dull. It's passive. Well, the best way to change that is to be a reader. That'll exercise your brain better than anything else. And, and then people will say to me, well, what should I read? And I say to them, well, what are you interested in? Uh, and, and I would also say, never pick up a book you're not interested in. Uh, that's what I do. I mean, if I was asked to be read, I don't read novels, but if you said the only thing you can read for the next year are, are novels, well, I'd die. <laughs> or if they said you've got to be reading on ancient history. And, uh, and, and, and being a French cook and, and growing roses, ah, I'd die again. But if you ask me to read on baseball history and success books and leadership books and presidential biographies and Civil War history and World War II history and Revolutionary War period and so forth, well, I'd, I'd light up because those are the areas that I'm interested in. That's, that's, where I, that's what I read. Does that make right, sense? 
No, it, it absolutely does. I, I'm, I'm thinking of the idea, if you don't know what your, you, if you don't know where your passion lies, if you don't know what you're interested in, maybe do read a, a wide range of books. And then you find out that I don't want to read about French cooking or, you know, uh, tablet writing, you know, what have you. Um, but, and I'm thinking this for many of the veterans that I work with is a lot of veterans today really feel lost in their post-military life. Like the best part of their life was while they were in the military, uh, because they don't feel like they have any meaning or purpose, um, that compares to what they did before. Um, and it strikes me that if, if you were to read and, and read consistently, you would find something that would spark you as, as your book has for me and, and, and other books on leadership have for me. Um, to, to maybe find some of that meaning and purpose in post-military life. Well, Dwayne, the same thing goes for my profession. You know, the absolute highlight of a pre professional athlete's life are the ages between, oh, what, 21 and maybe 35. Uh, you know, now if they go into coaching, that definitely would change but they um, they're they're never going to have anything that has the high of those years that they spent being a pro ball player but that's why it's so important for athletes and and all people in that kind of field olympians would be another good example uh, to have a, a backup plan for the second half of your life you don't want to go out there uh, when your last shot at the, at the hoop is over, you're 36, uh, and now you're one, you're one, drifting. What am I? What am I going to do now? I think you need to be thinking about that when you're 21 years old. Very few, by the way, NBA players think that way. <laughs> or you know, veterans, they, they, you're right. Yeah, yeah, they they think this is going to last forever, but it's not. And at 36, or maybe yeah, about 36, there there are exceptions. Uh, but at 36, you, uh, boy, you better have had something that you're working on and thinking about, you know, years before. You're absolutely right. And the parallels are, are striking. Um, I actually had a guest on the show, um, back, back in episode 114, Jacob Toops. Um, he's the director of a, a, an organization called Merging Vets and Players, MVP. Um, and, and this is an organization that recognizes exactly what you're talking about is the post professional sports life and the post military life have, have very, very many parallels, um, in that know the best part of your life isn't behind you. Um, it, it can be in front of you. Um, and there's been a lot of really great support for professional athletes in their post athletic career and soldiers in their post-military career supporting each other because of that very, very direct connection that they each have. Yeah, Dwayne, that's right. And before, listen, before our time expires here, uh, I do want to tell you about one other uh, person that we feature in the, this book. Her name was Maggie Dixon. Uh, Maggie Dixon was a, a women's basketball coach. She got the head coaching job at uh, West Point, she was very young, in her mid-20s. And uh, she took that program in a short period of time, really built it to, to uh, success. She got the campus excited. She got the, the male cadets enthusiastic about coming to the games. And it was quite a story. 
But then suddenly and shockingly, she uh, she died. Her heart. Uh, she had a heart ailment. And and at 27, uh, she was dead. It just just rocked that campus to the core. Just absolutely overwhelmed that campus. And um, we have visited her grave site uh, at the cemetery at West Point. Um, it, that's moving. And you'll see flowers there. You'll see some little basketballs left, you know, around her grave. But uh, we, we thought she was worthy of being included here. And uh, before we, we finish here, I just wanted to make sure that we, we mentioned Maggie Dixon. I think people will find that chapter uh, very moving. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, uh, again, another example of, you know, not being, uh, you know, um, an officer or West Point graduate, not knowing the history, although some very, very um, uh, trusted colleagues are, uh, you know, I'd not heard that story, right? And, and say I picked up this story looking for a book on leadership. Um, and, and yes, Maggie Dixon is absolutely one of that, but maybe military leadership. Uh, but just an example of, um, you know, of the virtues of the values that are just imbued. Uh, and again, m they're not solely West Point values or service academy values, they're universal values. Um, and, and I really appreciate you putting the book together and, and really bringing the stories, the deeper stories of these leaders um, out to illustrate them. It, it's, it's great. Well, that's great, uh, Dwayne. And um, I challenge anybody who reads this book and reads the epilogue uh, without lumping up or having some moist eyes, I, I, I challenge anybody uh, to try and avoid that. Uh, we tell the story about the young man at Marjorie um, Stedman's school down in South Florida. Uh, this 15-year-old had a lifelong dream of going to West Point. However, in that, uh, that massive shooting that went on there last year, uh, he... He, he basically sacrificed his life to, to save other people. And uh, he, he'll never get to West Point, but he will because the Academy has awarded him a place, uh, you know, and uh, calling him a, a, a West Point student, something to that effect. And uh, we share that story uh, to wrap the book up. I still get kind of misty eyed every time I read it. Yes. And, and, and this is, it goes back to the example of, you know, these, these are and can be intrinsic values. You know, the, the potential for all of these values are in each of us. Um, and, uh, and places like West Point or, or military service or, or even leadership is, you know, in the sports arena. Um, you know, all of these can, can develop them to a greater degree and prepare us for those moments. Uh, when history is going to call on us or, or, or maybe not history, but just our family or just that time in need. Um, it, it's an amazing book and I, and I really appreciate you putting it together. Um, if people want to learn more about you and what you're doing and, and, um, and maybe get connected with, uh, with the book and have some conversations around it, how could they do that? Well, Dwayne, the book is called character carved in stone. Uh, the author, that's me, Pat Williams. 
Revell, R-E-V-E-L-L. They're the publisher. Um, go up to Amazon. Always a great way to order books or barnesandnoble.com, your local bookstore. And um, get a couple of copies because I think when you read it, you're going to come away saying, oh, I want so-and-so to have this book <laughs> or I want this person to have that book. I think that's going to be your reaction. And uh, remember the, uh, the 12 qualities that are carved into those benches are qualities that all of us can, should have burned into our lives as well, whether we're West Point people or not. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very pleased, uh, Dwayne, that uh, we could visit. I'm, I'm, I'm greatly um, impressed, impacted uh, by your military career. You, 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 you should have written, you should be writing a book. Um, there, there, there is uh, well, there's one and a half, let's say I've, I've got, uh, but, um, I have a few more to, to catch up to you, of course, but, uh, but yes, there, there actually is a book. Well, that's great, Dwayne. Thanks a million. Call me anytime. We've, I've got another book coming out in the fall. It's called lead like Walt. And, uh, we, we, we're, uh, studying the life of Walt Disney through the narrow focus of leadership uh, to see what made him a successful leader. Uh, that book will be out in October. Uh, maybe, maybe we can hook up again. Absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you again for your time today. And, and it, was, uh, it was really inspirational for me. I appreciate it. Okay, Dwayne, all the best to you. Thank you. Bye-bye now. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. It was really great having the opportunity to talk to Pat about leadership in general and his book in particular. If you feel like you learned some stuff from this episode, that's nothing compared to what you'll get out of the book. A link to the book and a number of Pat's other books will be listed in the show notes. I wanted to take a second to thank my colleague Bart Lamont of Robin Autopilot for sharing Pat's book with me and facilitating an introduction. Like me, Bart's a huge admirer of Pat's work. After reading another of Pat's books, Bart reached out to him and opened up a dialogue. That's how accessible Pat is. I highly recommend that you pick up this book. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST122. If you want to show your support for the work we're doing, Make sure to leave an honest rating or review on your podcast player of choice. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. I'm happy to announce that I've released a paperback version of the first Headspace and Timing book. It's been available on Kindle for a couple of years, but you can get it along with Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy. To check it out, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST book. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a practicing therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next time for another great episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. And until then, 
Remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone, weeds overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.